Hi everyone, it's Mike Wong, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. We are about to start something brand new on this show. For season three of Star Trek Discovery, I'm going to try to do weekly responses and reactions to every episode as they come out. These are going to be short, probably 10 minutes or fewer in terms of length, uh, and this is because... As you may have noticed, if you've been following this podcast, that my rate of doing lengthy interviews has sort of fallen away over the summer. That's because, number one, work has gotten really, really busy for me. And number two, there is a global pandemic happening. So when work and life start to swell up in their busyness, unfortunately, this podcast, which again, I produce completely on the side, needs to shrink a little bit, but I really want to be able to bring you as much content from the intersection of science and Star Trek as possible, which is why I'm switching into this new mode, doing recaps and reactions to season three. Okay, so here's how these quick reaction episodes are going to go. There's going to be three segments, think, feel, and question. Section one, think. What am I thinking in reaction to that episode, especially as a scientist? How has that episode tickled my intellect? Number two, feeling. Basically, how has that episode made me feel as a human being and as a Star Trek fan? And finally, number three, question. What has piqued my curiosity? What do I want to know? Especially in this whole serialized type storytelling that Discovery is so famous for and so good at doing, what do I wish I knew about the universe of Star Trek or our universe at large? What open questions do I have? Okay, so here we go. Episode 301, which is titled, That Hope Is You, Part 1. Think. What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about Iceland. I mean, that episode was just such an amazing tour of Iceland. And I am lucky enough that I've been to Iceland twice in my life. And I've actually been to some of those places where they filmed this strange new world that Burnham crashes on and meets Booker. But the one place that I want to focus on for this episode is that volcanic crater that Burnham crashes into at the very beginning of the episode. That crater has a name. It's called Hjöverfjuk. And I 100% apologize to all of my Icelandic listeners and I know there's at least one of you out there for that horrible pronunciation, I fully understand that that is a first-order approximation of the way that that name is supposed to be pronounced. But Hjöverfuk is a tephra cone. It was created about 2,500 years ago in a volcanic eruption, a specific kind of eruption called a ferritomagmatic eruption. This is when magma is coming up towards the Earth's surface and comes in contact with liquid water, like groundwater or surface water on the Earth, and suddenly that water gets heated up by the magma and turns into steam. And as you all know, Gas occupies a lot more volume than liquid, and so all of a sudden you get this eruption not caused just by the magma itself, but due to the steam explosion of all of this water changing phase. And so this huge explosion sends volcanic material flying everywhere, and when it's deposited, it creates what's called a tephra cone, this loose, gravelly, dark, glassy, unconglomerated loose material. And so that's basically what Burnham falls into and then has to dig herself out of at the start of the episode. So, you know, 
the first episode of each of the Star Trek Discovery seasons, they seem to always have this amazing Burnham moment, at least for me. So the very first episode, that pilot episode, we are introduced to the Shenzhou. We sort of fly through the main viewer, which is, of course, a window, and we meet Burnham. And she says this amazing line about how the gas and dust of those swirling protoplanetary disks around their binary stars will one day produce planets and maybe even life. And it just shows how everything is born out of chaos. Oh, it's just beautiful. And then in season two, episode one, we get Burnham's incredible monologue overlaying these images from the real-life Cassini orbiter of the Saturn system, which just touched my heart so much. And then, Season 3, Episode 1, we get Burnham crashing into this Hiverfuck crater, which I've been to, and literally the first thing that she does when she pulls herself up is open up the scanning device on the Red Angel suit, and look for biosignatures. Identify space-time location. You have reached year 3188. Computer, life readings. Is there life here? Anywhere? Multiple life signs detected. And when she looks for biosignatures and finds them, she lets out this amazing scream like, yes! And I think as an astrobiologist, if we ever found a smoking gun evidence for life, a biosignature on another world, that's like going to be my response to it, right? I'm saving that gift for the day that we find life, the day that we find a definitive biosignature on, on a planet. Oh, it's going to be that amazing. But what's even cooler to me is that I actually did a mini biosignature project in that Hüverfuck crater. <laughs> it like couldn't get any more perfect. So I went to Iceland in the summer of 2016 for a European astrobiology campus workshop on looking for biosignatures on Mars. And Iceland, it turns out, is often used as a training ground for Mars and also the moon. Some of the Apollo astronauts were trained in geology on Iceland. And the reason for this is that Iceland is a volcanic island. It's a basaltic landscape. And it turns out that most of Mars and much of the moon is basalt as well. So Mars is this volcanic world, and the moon, those dark, smooth plains on the face of the moon that I guess constitute the rabbit in the moon, although I've never really seen the rabbit, but, you know, those dark plains in the moon, those are all volcanic plains and made of basalt as well. So Iceland serves as this analog environment for Mars and for the moon, and so the workshop was held on Iceland. And there was a hands-on component to this workshop where the mission was essentially to go and try to look for life in one of the geological locations that we were going to travel to. And my group chose this Tefrakon, Hjöverfuk. And basically we walked into this crater and took samples of the tephra all around the crater and inside the crater as well. And something that I noticed about the Star Trek episode that we all just enjoyed was that 
Burnham was actually never inside the crater. She landed on the slope of the crater on the outside. And you actually need a very special permit from the government to go inside that crater. And as scientists, we were lucky enough to acquire that. I don't know if the Discovery team never acquired that permit or simply for cinematic purposes, didn't want to film inside the crater itself. But anyhow, I actually got to go inside and walk around and take samples from all over that crater. And as I did so, of course, I imagined myself as an astronaut on Mars exploring that red world for the first time. But if I had the chance to go back, I would definitely imagine myself as Michael Burnham in the red angel suit instead. But anyway, what we did to look for life in that crater, what we did to scan for biosigns, is we used what's called a luciferase assay. Luciferase is an enzyme that you can find in all sorts of life here on Earth, bacteria and fireflies as well. And so we actually used firefly luciferase. So you take this enzyme from the firefly that is the enzyme that's responsible for the firefly lighting up. So luciferase lights up in the presence of ATP, the universal energy currency of life. So you basically take your little soil sample, do a little processing on it, and then pour in this enzyme luciferase. And if there is any ATP, i.e. there's crushed up life in that sample, the luciferase should glow. And if it does, then you know you found life. And by the magnitude by which it glows, you can roughly tell how much life or how much biomass was there. So that's how we scanned for life. We didn't have a red angel suit, so instead we relied on luciferase. Now, if you're thinking about applying this to exobiology or astrobiology, you might be wondering, wait a minute, luciferase seems like an oddly specific molecule or strategy to use. I mean, it's an enzyme that life on Earth has evolved to react with an energy currency molecule, ATP, that is universal to life on Earth, but what if life elsewhere, say on Mars, or on the world that Burnham crash-landed on, doesn't use ATP? Then you can pour all the luciferase you want into a sample that contains alien biology, and it will just never react and never glow up, and you would miss the life that is literally hiding in plain sight. And I would agree with you. I would say absolutely. If I were to go to Mars with a way to find life, it would not be by luciferase, because I think that is tailored far too much specifically to Earth life. Now, for the purposes of our Icelandic project, we used the luciferase assay because, well, we knew we were going to find life because it was Earth. Um, but like I said, you wouldn't actually use luciferase in an astrobiological context. The purpose of the workshop and of the exercise was to just give us the framework and the tools with which we would use to look for life on another world. And we sort of cheated the game by knowing that we were going to find it. Nonetheless, some really cool science came out of it. We noticed that the samples on one side of the crater actually had more life, more ATP, more biomass in them than samples from another side of the crater. And we concluded that this was most likely because of the sun. So Iceland is way up in the north, 65 or so degrees north of the equator. And that means that different regions of this Hiverfa crater get different amounts of sunlight 
over the course of a year. And so the side with more sunlight obviously has more energy for photosynthesis. And that was our main conclusion, that uh, we found evidence that life was probably reliant on the sun in this crater. And that's why we had this distribution of life. Okay, that was a really long think section. Uh, they probably won't all be that long in response to the Discovery episodes, but that was just a story I needed to tell because Michael Burnham scanning for biosignatures in the location where I did a biosignature project. Ugh, I still can't get over it. So cool. Okay, section two, feeling. What am I feeling? I am actually feeling very ambivalent about this 32nd century future. You know, I was actually expecting to feel more of a profound loss after finding out what the burn is and after finding out that the Federation is basically no more. And then I was expecting to find a swelling of hope when Michael Burnham and Cleveland Booker encounter Mr. Aditya Sahil in that Federation transmission station, whatever that was. And they rolled down the flag and they put it up and, you know, it just didn't feel that emotionally powerful to me and I almost felt like it was supposed to but it wasn't and I think that's just because I really don't feel that attached to this future yet I feel attached to Michael Burnham I'm starting to feel attached to Cleveland Booker I'm very much attached to the rest of the Discovery crew but they're not here yet and all of the people from the previous Trek shows Janeway Cisco etc they are long dead so it's like I don't really care what you do right now. You know, rebuild the Federation. Don't rebuild the Federation. Make something better. Reinvent warp drive. Find a different mode of propulsion. Go back in time and fix it all. It doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I'm not that invested yet. And maybe that will change as we progress further and find out more and more about what exactly the burn was. Okay, final segment, questions. What are my questions? Well, my biggest question is, what about the other propulsion technologies that we know of on Star Trek? So we find out in this episode that the burn was when most of the dilithium in the galaxy just went away, exploded or destabilized or something about 120 years prior to the time that this episode takes place. But the thing is, while dilithium is very fundamental, to warp drives on Federation ships and of the propulsion systems of numerous species, it is not the only thing, I think, that could make things go to sound like a pack lead. But we know from Star Trek canon, for instance, that the Romulans, with a vast star empire, don't use conventional warp drives but they use what's called a singularity drive. They derive their energy not from the reaction between antimatter and matter, but from harnessing the energy of an artificial black hole on their ships. Don't ask me how that happens. I'm not sure. But suffice it to say, I think it's established that basically they don't use matter-antimatter reactions. And I actually just checked the purpose of dilithium in my Star Trek The Next Generation technical manual is basically to facilitate that matter-antimatter reaction. It's the only known substance to the Federation that is permeable to antimatter, meaning it can meet antimatter but not blow up. So it is the thing that you focus streams of matter and streams of antimatter into, and then you have that reaction taking place, and the dilithium 
directs the output of that reaction, this plasma flow, into the EPS grid of the ship. So that's like the purpose of dilithium in Star Trek. So if you don't run your ship off of the energy of matter-antimatter combustion and use singularities instead, then shouldn't the whole galaxy essentially be ruled by the Romulans? So I'm looking forward to the explanation of that. What happened to the singularity drives? Were they affected by the burn? And why isn't Romulan technology just the standard now? Even if the Empire fell, couldn't other engineers across the galaxy figure out how to use singularity drives? I don't know. Maybe that knowledge was lost. But that's my biggest question right now. Okay, that's it for my reactions to Season 3, Episode 1, That Hope Is You, Part 1. Take care, everyone, and enjoy Episode 2. I'll be back next week. That crater has a name. It's called uh, Hiver. <laughs> it's called it's called Hiverfuk. Uh, it's called Hiverfuk. <laughs>